This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have another very exciting episode in store for you today. We're talking about COVID-19. Surprise, surprise. And today we have an interview with uh, Dr. Peter Uni. Dr. Uni is a director of the Applied Health Research Center at St. Michael's Hospital, as well as a professor at the Department of Medicine. Okay, an all-around really nice guy too. Let's add that in there. So uh, Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. So Peter, before we jump in, I understand that you are leading the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Uh, What the heck is that? The Science Table is a a new initiative of independent scientists in Ontario and delegates from different organizations such as Public Health Ontario, the ministry, that is meeting weekly with the Health Command Table of the province to discuss with the Health Command Table new evidence that came up, questions they're having that, that can be informed by science, etc. Terrific. And how did you get involved with uh, work related to COVID-19? Well, originally it just happened, you know, beginning of March, uh, the landscape here in Toronto after SARS was dominated basically by scientists that were highly tuned in with, uh, you know, potential issues related to a pandemic that could be upcoming. The awareness for um, COVID-19 was considerably different than what I would have experienced or have experienced before in uh, in Switzerland. And I think a lot of that was just related to the fact that a lot of you guys, I'm Swiss, as you hear from my accent, a lot of you guys actually were around already when SARS happened in 2003. And the people here were much, much more tuned in. So when we actually just uh, started to become aware of that this would become a problem, we were basically inundated with uh, projects related to SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. And we started to design with uh, various investigators, multiple trials, observational studies, etc. So since beginning of March, I've been involved near exclusively just in uh, COVID-19 research. Gotcha. And, and yeah, and that's, of course, the ARC that you're referring to at St. Mike's, which is uh, yeah, a terrific research center that has helped the COVID prone study. And certainly I'm appreciative for that. So, all right. So I guess, you know, you were seeing these studies and you thought, you know what, uh, I'm going to jump in. So what is your main role on the Ontario COVID-19 science advisory table? And maybe we'll just call it the table for short. I I'm, I'm was asked to play the role of the scientific director. So I'm basically the executive lead of the table. We have a secretariat with younger colleagues and we work with the remaining members of the table on a reports relating to pertinent questions. Perfect. And uh, I guess the question that's in everyone's mind now as we're recording this, geez, what day is it today? Friday, August uh, the 28th, 2020. You know, a burning question in a lot of people's minds is going back to school and and how do you make this work? And I think the timing of the report is... uh, you know, very ideal. The report, of course, is entitled The Role of Children in SARS-CoV-2 Transmission. So if you were to give us the sort of punchline, um, what's a take-home point from this report? Well, 
at the very beginning of the pandemic, it became very clear that luckily, you know, for all of us who are parents and uh, luckily for everybody, children were not heavily affected by the disease. No? And what this led to at the very beginning is a notion, an early notion that was very dominant in Europe, that children probably don't play a major role for uh, the pandemic at all. And the punchline here really is that this conclusion at the beginning was premature and that more recent research doesn't confirm this notion. Children could play a relevant role, probably do play a relevant role. And, you know, the control measures, the public health interventions that we're actually trying to apply to keep this pandemic sort of contained will apply as much to children as to adults. And obviously, we need to tailor the measures we're taking to contain the pandemic then to the age-specific needs of children. So if I have this right, it sounds like one of the core messages is that although children are you know, highly unlikely to do poorly if they get COVID-19, said more simply, the vast majority of kids who get COVID-19 will do very, very well. However... Children play an important role when it comes to potentially infecting others around them and probably a similar role to people who aren't kids, to, to adults. Is that a fair statement? Yes, indeed. We're probably more confident for older kids, you know, kids of 10 and above, where we're now relatively confident that there's not much of a difference between a child of 12 and an adult. For younger kids, there are, you know, some hunches that they could, you know, be a bit less susceptible. But we also need to be aware of that. Children are different from a behavioral perspective, actually. And it could well be, even if they have a little bit of an edge, you know, that they are a bit less susceptible to get infected. Since they have a different behavior, they could just compensate for that. And the behavior could offset the biological edge they may have a little bit. Yeah, and I can certainly relate to that. I remember when I was on the wards at Sinai, probably back in, I guess, March or April, and my partner and I, we sort of taped off our condo. And, and you know, I was on one side, she was on the other, I had my own bathroom, my own bedroom. And some of my friends saw pictures of this on Twitter. And they said, if you had kids this would be impossible. And of course, because like you said, the behavior of kids is very different than the behavior of adults. For sure, for sure. I mean, there's a landmark study from 2008 that shows that very impressively, you know, when they actually just tried to quantify the number of high-risk contacts that could result in transmission of infectious diseases, they really found, you know, that especially slightly older kids were leading the field. They had considerably more contacts than, you know, middle-aged adults, for example. And this certainly plays a role here, too. Okay. So we won't focus too much on the initial evidence because I think we can all agree there was probably a, a bit of a, a rush to get that initial evidence out. Let's talk more about the most recent data that helps to support these claims. Can you walk us through maybe one or two, maybe one of your favorite studies that helped to spell this out for us? Yeah. So you know, the South Koreans really have an edge in this pandemic. They're extremely disciplined. They have great contact tracing in place. And, you know, one of the studies that uh, was relatively recently published looked at more than 10,000 household contacts of uh, more than 5,000 cases. And what they did, they systematically tested everybody, every single contact in a household. That's the high-risk situation 
irrespective of whether the household contact was symptomatic or not. That's one of the major aspects here, which is really important, no? And since this was independent of people developing symptoms or not, the estimates they get for susceptibility are much more reliable, much less biased. And what they found there is that all the children of 10 to 19 years tended to be actually more likely to test positive within a household than adults. Younger children below 10 years of age were in this study roughly half as likely to test positive, but still, you know, half as likely as compared with adults, which was relevant. Interesting. Yeah, that does give a very nice sort of contextualization because you're just looking at, hey, we got all of these houses. Um, What's the actual rate of transmission, whether you're you know, mom, dad, um, you know, kids or babies. So that's quite cool. And I, I wasn't aware of that study. I guess some of the other really interesting data, as I read through the report, is some of these seroprevalence studies. So for listeners, well, I guess if you're listening, you probably already know what seroprevalence uh, means. But essentially, as you can imagine, you're trying to get a sense of how many people in a community have antibodies to suggest they've been exposed and had COVID-19 before. But I think in your report, you guys highlight a couple seroprevalence studies that were random samples of the population, which to me seems even more powerful. Uh, Do you want to chat a bit about uh, one of those studies? Yeah, one of the studies is from my home country, from uh, Switzerland in Geneva. And what was done there, they essentially invited a random sample of people to undergo blood samplings. And what they found was that As in the previous study that I was referring to on contact tracing, young kids, you know, below the age of 10 were only about a third as likely as all the children as adults to to have antibodies against uh, the virus. The older children of 10 to 15, 16 years were about as likely as adults actually to be uh, antibody positive. The problem was, you know, that uh, this study and also other studies were done during a time when schools were closed. So this doesn't give you, you know, the natural situation that we're about to experience now here in Ontario. So again, a signal towards perhaps a slightly lower risk in young kids. But how much of that actually would be related just to the fact that schools were closed when they were doing the study at the beginning of the pandemic? Gotcha. So if I have it right, you know, you're talking about this... uh impressive study from Switzerland, maybe partially because it's your your home, but also because it's a great study. So what they did was they took about 3,000 randomly selected participants in the population and then asked a very simple question. What's the prevalence of antibodies to COVID-19 based on age? And what it seems like is that individuals over the age of 10 had a similar uh, rate of having positive antibodies as older adults and maybe kids less than 10 had a slightly lower risk of being exposed to COVID-19 and having COVID-19 previously. Does that sound about right? Yes, indeed it does. And the question is now, is this because children have a lower risk to be infected with SARS-CoV-2 with the virus? You know, that's one of the problems anyway, what we're talking about right now. COVID-19 is the disease. And uh, I hear people always saying, what's my risk or my child's risk to uh, be infected with COVID-19? And I can't give an answer because that's a disease that is caused by the virus. And one of the problems we have, kids don't get COVID-19 in general or very rarely, but do they have the virus or not? And this uh, seroprevalence study, actually just uh, this one and other seroprevalence studies give you sort of an answer. 
All the children are as likely as adults to be infected and develop antibodies against SARS-CoV-2. Younger children are a bit less likely, but is this because of the kids or is it because schools were closed? All right. And, you know, with that in mind, uh, I think it's a perfect segue to talk a little bit about schools, something that's on uh, everyone's mind. So why don't you sort of highlight some of the data in the report about what we know from other areas of the world? And let's start with some good examples. So why don't we start with uh, one of my favorite countries, Denmark? Tell us more about how they opened schools and uh, how that went. Yeah, the Danes were actually remarkably courageous. You know, they opened the schools already on April 15th. That's very early in the pandemic when there was still quite a high rate of local transmission. You know, we we think about that uh, typically, you know, as how many cases occur per 10 million inhabitants. And they did that at the surprisingly high level of more than 300 new daily cases they still had. But, you know, with a, with a downwards tendency. And they opened schools very, very carefully in a stepwise fashion. And they had an amazing amount of measures in, in place, you know, that uh, there was full social distancing, hand hygiene protocols going on, sanitation protocols, that everything was meticulously cleaned. Well-ventilated classrooms, encouragement of outdoor classes whenever possible, etc. No masks, interestingly enough, no masks at all. And obviously small classes and an attempt of cohorting the students so that uh, different classes would remain in their bubbles and would not interact with each other. And it was remarkable how well this went and how little problems they had until the school holidays in summer. Yeah, I, I was equally very, very impressed. So I guess the sort of summary point for our listeners is that in Denmark, they opened schools in April. What did they do? They did it in a stepwise fashion, starting with the youngest kids and working their way up. And I think I could be wrong, but I think it was their focus on having small classes, you know, like less than 10 in some cases, and then cohorting those classes that seemed to have a powerful benefit. Uh, but as you mentioned, they did not implement masks. So let's contrast that perhaps with um, some of the other places that also opened up, uh, but had quite a few outbreaks. Uh, is there any specific example you want to uh, talk about? Yeah, I mean, the counter example clearly is Israel. No, they started really, really well. They started when they opened schools with uh, very low levels of local transmission, were, you know, one of the ideal candidates during the first part of the pandemic. There was very little happening in Israel, luckily, you know, with the, they uh, got things under control with the lockdown. But what happened then is that they relatively swiftly opened up a lot. A, in schools, you know, that they didn't have the small school classes anymore very swiftly. They started, but they but changed this then. But also on a wider level that they didn't have the same amount of uh, public health interventions in place when they continued to open more and more. And as a potential result there in a country which is obviously much more vulnerable with more socioeconomic differentials, etc. going on and a higher density, a very high urban density that is considerably higher than uh, what you see in, uh, in Denmark, they started to have outbreaks relatively soon. And 
when people started to look into that as part of audits, what they really found, you know, very unfortunately so, that there was a heat wave going on in May and the students weren't uh, able to wear masks anymore. Classrooms were overcrowded. They had more than 30 students in a classroom, no ability to do social distancing, etc. And this in combination, you know, with the swift opening of everything else in the society led to a lot of problems. That's right. And, you know, I know we've seen parallels in the U.S. as well. Of course, that's a whole other can of worms that maybe we won't go into, but it seems like a big difference if we were to compare and contrast the two. It seems like one of the biggest is probably the rate at which things opened and also the fact that we eventually got to the point where there were classes of 30 plus people, where of course that was not the case in Denmark. Any other key distinguishing points you you wanted to bring up that I missed? No, I think that's the most important one. If you if you open schools, do it carefully, um, do it stepwisely, and make sure you have all the other concomitant steps that are important, not only at the level of schools, but also at the level of society, that you don't start to, you know, increase the risk of schools, that there is an ongoing uh, number of cases that are actually imported into schools that could result in potential outbreaks. Yeah. So to that point, talking a bit more about schools, what has been the sort of main advice that has come from this report that you've discussed with the government and how was that received, if you're allowed to talk about that on record? Yes, you see this, the setup of also of the table really is to provide evidence that should inform decision-making at the, at the governmental level. We're not set up to give firm recommendations, typically. We're there to state the obvious from a scientific perspective, actually. And our first mandate that we felt, you know, we had was just to clarify and perhaps, you know, bust the myth that children, unlike what was initially assumed, at least in some European countries, actually do play a role and that this needs to be taken seriously and that even if perhaps younger children may have a biological edge there is some you know lab research indicating why it could actually be a bit better in younger children that this could is not necessarily meaning um, that they could not, because of their behavior, etc., you know, result in the same amount of contribution to the pandemic as all the kids and adults. And, you know, the bottom line is just to, to be on the same page, that we don't trivialize the problem, that we take it seriously. There is nothing, you know, that we should panic about. It's doable. We see that in Denmark. It actually worked out if you are disciplined, etc. But if we don't take it seriously that, you know, things might become problematic relatively soon. And to get on the same page, you know, also for us, you know, at the provincial level is probably an important thing. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, in incredibly important and, you know, a source of, I think, a, a lot of anxiety as well right now. I don't have kids myself, but I got, you know, lots of friends who do have kids. So, you know, it's a tough place to be in when you're trying to make this decision. So I guess, Peter, uh, if I can put you on the spot, uh, you mentioned you have kids at home. What's going to be your plan? Well, they go back to school as normal. Um, 
it's important for them, you know, to develop, to have all the, you know, social and, and learning opportunities they need. I believe that we're in, in good hands. You know, we need to be pragmatic. You can't get everything perfect. Everybody does everything the first time during this pandemic. And this also holds for school openings now. But people are taking this seriously. And um, we also need to be aware of, we talked about that at the beginning, the risk is right now really low we are in the honeymoon phase of the pandemic in Ontario that's this helps that's one thing the other thing is we shouldn't be concerned about our children and we should just try to find measures that help us to contain any potential outbreaks what we did here in addition just you know in our family is as a result of you know the school openings coming and our children going back to school is we actually moving my mom who is 80 out of our house here in uh, toronto she moves back to switzerland because that's one of the things that we can't you know uh, you know risk that we have her exposed to us as a family with children where there is a possibility that something could happen which will not be tremendous for us got but uh, could be tremendous for my mother who is 80. Yeah, that's kind of really nice to hear your approach as not only somebody leading this report but also as a as a dad and as a son. So I think the listeners will, will definitely appreciate that. You know, w- when I think about what needs to be in place for schools to reopen safely, it seems like the big things you've talked about such as being in an area where there isn't high amounts of community transmission, uh, really the importance of limiting class sizes. A big question that's come up before is masks, yes or no. I don't know if you want to weigh in on that. I mean, the Toronto District School Board, which seems to be recommending masks to children over the age of four, seems pretty reasonable to me. But uh, do you want to weigh in on that at all? Yeah, um, I mean, we will be looking more into masks in future reports. In any case, we just need to be aware of that while things are probably relatively um, unproblematic in adults, we will find out as the, uh, how things go, you know, when this actually evolves, you know. Probably in all the children, this might be relatively unproblematic. Let's see how it is. How will it be with small ones? We were about to find out. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly correct. So, you know, Peter, I think I've asked you all the questions that came to mind. Any other points that you wanted to um, add that maybe we missed? Can't think of any right now. Okay. And then I should ask as well. So how are things going in Switzerland right now? Um, have schools reopened there? And, and how's that been going? Just anecdotally even. Yeah, well, they have reopened uh, around the 10th of August. Um Mixed success, you know, their honeymoon phase is over. We will experience that too, you know. They were relatively okay um, when they opened school still before the summer break. They are now in a phase where there's an increasing tendency of cases and they typically occur in younger age groups. So you don't see much of a burden to the healthcare system yet. And it may well be, you know, that you start to see then also now issues in school. It's an ongoing, you know, attempt to balance things so that the wildfire actually doesn't break out. That's right. And for our listeners, unfortunately, you didn't have the video there to see that Peter was doing this dance almost of keeping this fine balance. So, um, all right, Peter. So I think we are just about at time. Uh, but were there any other last points that you wanted to clarify or, or mention that you haven't? The thing that I might not have emphasized enough is that children are really much 
more likely to stay asymptomatic, not to develop any symptoms than adults. And this really complicates most of the studies and it also confuses physicians, the public and everybody else. Once you factor in that children may be out there, they carry the virus, they could transmit the virus, etc., but they are not affected whatsoever, they're just merrily, merrily just walking around, then you start to understand that the problem could potentially be much bigger than what was initially presumed. I see. And I think I might have also been a clinician who was confused about this. So what you're saying is young kids are unlikely to have symptoms, even if they have the virus, so that it's much harder when we're trying to count the cases because many kids will seem none the wiser that they had uh, the coronavirus. Does that sound about right? Yes, completely. You know, and then even it goes even further and they're really small. Does a kid really understand? Okay, he doesn't smell anymore or she doesn't smell anymore or taste. Is he or she actually able to uh, articulate that? That's another question. I think nobody has looked into that part. So it's just much more difficult with children and they could just merrily walk around, have the virus, not care, but we still have to look for it. All right, that definitely makes sense uh, for sure. I mean, even among adults, when you ask them about the symptoms, sometimes they barely mention any or they can't distinguish it from the common cold. So that makes sense to me. I had this colleague of mine uh, who is a cardiologist who told me, you know, he had this. he had bought this wonderful bottle of wine and brought it home and told his wife, oh my God, I paid so much for this bottle and it actually smells disgusting, nothing, forget it. And she responds to him, well, but actually it's great wine. And that's when he realized actually that he didn't have a sense of taste and smell anymore. And this was his entry ticket into understanding, oh, I might actually be positive for SARS-CoV-2. So even if adults struggle, tell me what about children? Yeah. And I think with that in mind, it's a Friday night. So you've reminded me it's time for me to have a glass of wine. So Peter, thanks again for coming on the show. It was a ton of fun. And we'll hope to uh, have you again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.